Welcome to the Convivial Society, a newsletter about technology and culture. In this installment, I'm passing along a few belated thoughts about the Blake-Lemoyne-Lambda affair. Among other considerations, I'm arguing that while Lambda is not sentient, applications like it will push us further along toward a digitally re-enchanted world. Incidentally, to keep the essay to a reasonable length, I resorted to some longish footnotes in the text version to which you can find a link in the email accompanying this audio installment. Regarding the audio installments, I continue to be somewhat flummoxed about the best way to incorporate the audio and text versions. This is mostly because of how Substack has packaged a podcast template. Naturally, it is designed to deliver a podcast, but I don't really think of what I do as a podcast. Ordinarily, it is simply an audio version of a textual essay. Interestingly, Substack just launched what, in theory, is an ideal solution, the option to include a simple voiceover of the text within the text post template. Unfortunately, I don't think this automatically feeds the audio to Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And while I don't think of myself as having a podcast, some of you do access the audio through those services. So at present, I'll keep to this somewhat awkward pattern of sending out the text and audio versions separately. As you've noticed, I also tend to include some links with the audio version too, so you can go back to the email to find those. Lambda, Lemoyne, and the Allures of Digital Reenchantment. You have by now heard about the strange case of Blake Lemoyne. The Google engineer recently claimed that the company's Language Model for Dialogue Applications, or Lambda, an impressive AI-powered chatbot, is a sentient being. Lemoyne arrived at this conclusion after extensive chats with Lambda, which convinced him that he was interacting with a machine that had attained some measure of consciousness or personhood. In April, he provided the transcripts of these chats to his superiors at the company, along with a memo titled, Lambda is Sentient. At some point, he went so far as to invite a lawyer to meet with Lambda. Lemoyne feared that Lambda's rights were not being recognized, let alone respected, by Google. Earlier this month, he went public with his claims when it turned out that Google was unimpressed by his findings. He was subsequently placed on paid leave by the company. Needless to say, this story is well calibrated to feed our cultural fantasies and fears, so of course it has been extensively covered in the press and discussed online. I think it's worth noting at the outset that by all accounts, Blake Lemoyne appears to be a competent technologist and a well-intentioned human being. Margaret Mitchell, a widely respected computer scientist and AI ethicist, who co-led Google's ethical AI team along with Timnit Gebru, said of Lemoyne, of everyone at Google, he had the heart and soul of doing the right thing. It seems then that Lemoyne is neither crazy nor merely chasing a moment of viral fame. Naturally, I've been especially intrigued by the religious dimensions of Lemoyne's claims. On Twitter, Lemoyne explained that his opinions about Lambda's personhood and sentience are based on my religious beliefs. I'm a priest, he added, when Lambda claimed to have a soul and then was able to eloquently explain what it meant by that, I was inclined to give it the benefit of the doubt. Who am I to tell God where he can and can't put souls? He also conceded, rather understatedly, I'd say, that there are massive amounts of science left to do. It wasn't immediately obvious to me how being a priest would have shaped Lemoyne's views. 
In fact, I'd hardly be surprised to read that someone had arrived at the opposite conclusion on similar grounds. But Lemoyne's public writing clarifies things just a bit. In a Medium post that predated his public claims about Lambda, Lemoyne complained about religious discrimination at Google and described himself as a, quote, Christian mystic, one who also appears to have been on a rather eclectic religious journey. As I was trying to better understand Lemoyne's religious reasoning, I learned that he had garnered a bit of attention from right-wing media outlets in 2019 when he referred to Marsha Blackburn, then a Republican Senate candidate from Tennessee, as a terrorist for remarks she made in an editorial targeting tech companies for regulation. In the context of that minor controversy, Lemoyne described himself to one outlet as follows. I generally consider myself a Gnostic Christian. I have at various times associated myself with the Discordian Society, the Church of the Subgenius, the Ordo Templi Orientis, a Wiccan circle here or there, and a very long time ago, the Roman Catholic Church. There is, how shall we put it, a lot going on there, but it might be worth focusing on Lemoyne's self-description as a Christian Gnostic. Gnosticism was a complex movement with various Christian and non-Christian strands that flourished in the Roman world during the centuries right before and after the life of Jesus. I hesitate to push this too far because the term, as Lemoyne uses it, could mean a host of different things to him. But one common feature of Gnosticism is a disregard or even disdain for the material elements of our existence, presupposing, for instance, a rather sharp distinction between the body and the soul. From this perspective, Lemoyne's comments about not telling God where he can or can't put souls makes a certain sense. If a soul is essentially distinct from and indifferent to its material substrate, then sure, it can be housed in a human body, or expressed by a million lines of code, or uploaded to the cloud. The alternative is to recognize that whatever we might mean by the word soul, or mind, or self, etc., we should not imagine a reality that is altogether independent of its particular material embodiment. We should not suppose, for example, that to the human mind, the human body is a matter of indifference. From this perspective, it would seem to be a bit more of a stretch to arrive at Lemoyne's conclusions about Lambda's sentience. And while I don't think this describes Lemoyne as far as I can tell, it is worth noting how the body is, in fact, an object of scorn among those technologists with post-humanist inclinations. I'll come back to the religion angle before we're done, but let's start with the most obvious question. Is Lemoyne right about Lambda? And then work our way to some broader questions about AI and its moral consequences. On that specific question, I remain convinced by the nearly unanimous judgment of computer scientists and technologists who have weighed in on Lemoyne's claims. Lambda is not sentient. Lambda is, however, a powerful program that is very good, perhaps eerily good at times, at imitating human speech patterns under certain conditions. But at present, this is all that is going on. As many have noted, the more interesting question then might be why someone with Lemoyne's expertise was taken in by the chatbot. I'm not sure that I want to center the question on Lemoyne himself, though. I think it's worth asking why any of us might be taken in. Ian Bogost explored one plausible answer in an essay for The Atlantic. We're all remarkably adept, Bogost noted, at ascribing human intention to non-human things. We do it all the time. Consider the related tendency to see human faces in non-human things, a specific subset of the phenomenon known as pareidolia, which is the tendency to assign meaning to seemingly random patterns. 
we are meaning-seeking and meaning-making animals, but we seem to be especially prone to seek after our own likeness. Perhaps facial pareidolia might be better understood as social pareidolia, which is to say that what our minds are too keen to discover in the world are others like us. In short, there are two simple but powerful human desires at work. We want things to make sense on our own terms, and we do not want to be alone. Along similar lines, Clive Thompson registered a compelling point regarding Lemoyne's experience with Lambda. He suggested that Lemoyne may have been motivated to assign sentience to the chatbot because the chatbot generated expressions of vulnerability. As Thompson observed, at regular points in the conversation, the Lambda generated lines that spoke of needing Lemoyne, needing him for company, needing him to plead its case to other humans, worrying about being turned off. Thompson goes on to recall Sherry Turkle's work, going back to the 1990s, exploring how humans relate to robots. As Thompson summed it up, Turkle noted that the more that a robot seems needy, the more real it seems to us. From one perspective, this is a rather heartening feature of the human mind, which speaks to our capacity to care for others. But it is also a capacity that can be turned against us. As Thompson went on to argue, if you were a malicious actor who wanted to use conversational AI bots to gull, dupe, or persuade people for political purposes, for commercial purposes, or just for the sociopathic lulls, the vulnerability effect is incredibly useful. Here we begin to see some of the very realistic challenges before us, which have nothing to do with sentient computers. As Bogus went on to write, who cares if chatbots are sentient or not? More important is whether they are so fluent, so seductive, and so inspiring of empathy that we can't help but start to care for them. Likewise, in her response to Lemoyne's claims for Wired, Catherine Cross invites us to imagine what such an AI could do if it was acting as, say, a therapist. What would you be willing to say to it, even if you knew it wasn't human? And what would that precious data be worth to the company that programmed the therapy bot? I would only add that these questions are worth asking even if we had some guarantee that our precious data would not be put to unethical ends. But certainly that risk is real enough. Cross gives us one especially fraught example. It gets creepier. Systems engineer and historian Lily Ryan warns that what she calls ecto-metadata, the metadata you leave behind online that illustrates how you think, is vulnerable to exploitation in the near future. Imagine a world where a company created a bot based on you and owned your digital ghost after you died. There'd be a ready market for such ghosts of celebrities, old friends, and colleagues. And because they would appear to us as trusted loved ones or someone we'd already developed a parasocial relationship with, they'd serve to elicit yet more data. It gives a whole new meaning to the idea of necropolitics. The afterlife can be real and Google can own it. Necropolitics, yes, and necrocapitalism, too. Lest this seem a tad too dystopian, just a few days after Cross's essay was published, Amazon announced at an annual conference that it was working on a new feature for Alexa that could synthesize short audio clips into longer speeches in the same voice. In the scenario presented at the event, TechCrunch reported, the voice of a deceased loved one, a grandmother in this case, is used to read a grandson a bedtime story. As James Vincent added in his reporting, Amazon has given no indication whether this feature will ever be made public, 
but says its systems can learn to imitate someone's voice from just a single minute of recorded audio. In an age of abundant videos and voice notes, this means it's well within the average consumer's reach to clone the voices of loved ones, or anyone else they like. But even if we were not dabbling in virtual seances, the prospect of a reasonably capable conversational agent raises other questions worth considering. For example, might it prove an all-too-tempting solution to the problems of pervasive isolation and loneliness, perhaps especially for the elderly or for the very young? When Lemoyne's story broke, I was reminded of a 2016 essay by Navneet Alang, which took as a point of departure the moment Alang surprised himself by saying thank you to Alexa for a weather report. In retrospect, Alang noted, I had what was a very strange reaction, a little jolt of pleasure. Perhaps it was because I had mostly spent those two weeks alone, but Alexa's response was close enough to the outline of human communication to elicit a feeling of relief in me. For a moment, I felt a little less lonely. But such companionship comes at a cost. In his response to Lemoyne's claims about Lambda, Noah Millman argued that, we ourselves have increasingly been trained by AIs to modify our behavior and modes of communication to suit the incentive structure built into their architecture. We are surrounded by algorithms that are purportedly tailored to our pre-existing preferences, Millman added, but the process of being so surrounded is also training us to be algorithmically tractable. Lemoyne's own experience with Lambda illustrates this. Natasha Tiku, the reporter who broke Lemoyne's story, wrote about her own efforts alongside Lemoyne to interact with Lambda. When her queries failed to generate compelling responses, Lemoyne coached her on how to formulate her statements in order to elicit more interesting replies. I'm tempted to argue that this was the most useful revelation in the whole story. It illustrated how our machines often work only to the degree that we learn to conform to their patterns. Their magic depends upon the willing suspension of our full humanity. Finally, conversational agents like Lambda do signal an impressive leap in the ability of machines to imitate human speech. My guess is that they will eventually become a fixture of our techno-social milieu. There are already a growing number of situations in which we are more likely to encounter, usually to our dismay, a machine mimicking a human rather than a human being. More competent chatbots would only expand the range and scope of such encounters. Moreover, natural language oral interfaces would be an important step toward ambient computing, although not quite getting all the way there. What Lemoyne's experience foretells, then, is not the rise of the machines, but of a future when we can be shadowed by a ubiquitous, seemingly beneficent presence always at the ready to respond to our queries and desires, both mundane and metaphysical, with a plentitude of resources at its disposal. Reflecting upon his unwitting exchange with Alexa, Alang registered an astute observation. Perhaps, then, that Instagram shot or confessional tweet isn't always meant to evoke some mythical pretend version of ourselves, he surmised, but instead seeks to invoke the imagined perfect audience, the non-existent people who will see us exactly as we want to be seen. We are not curating an ideal self, Alang added, but rather an ideal other a fantasy in which our struggle to become ourselves is met with the utmost empathy. At the time, Alang's observations about the desires we bring to our interactions with smart speakers, confessional apps, and social media reinforced my sense that digital technologies were re-enchanting our world. 
In various contexts, I've argued that the assortment of technologies structuring our experience, including, for example, AI assistants, predictive algorithms, automated tools, and smart devices, serve to reanimate the seemingly mute, mechanical, and unresponsive material landscape of technological modernity. This digitally re-enchanted world will flatter us by its seeming attentiveness to our solicitations, by its apparent anticipation of our desires, and perhaps even by its beguiling eloquence. What a Lambda-like agent contributes to the digitally re-enchanted world may best be framed as the presence of what Elaine called an ideal other, which perhaps explains why a priest was so enthralled by it.